Hey, happy Sunday, everybody. I hope everybody had a good weekend. Get to start a whole new week. But you know what? It's a whole new week at California Haunts Radio. So hopefully you guys will get to see some really good shows this week. Um, all the guests, excuse me, while I get adjusted, all the guests have confirmed. And so we've got a really good plethora of different types of guests on this week. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And I also own the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal issue, we can get to you as quickly as, as possible. And if we're further away from you, we can still get to you, right? Anyway, you have everybody about five minutes to uh, come into the room to join. If then, you know, like, like my other thing says, uh, it's your popcorn and snacks and all that, or maybe you're having dinner. And you're going to be listening to me tell tell the story of, uh, you know, talk about the Salem Witch Trials and all that. So I'll give you some time. But uh, I've been pretty busy this weekend. You know, I was cleaning my yard and getting ready for uh, Halloween, you know. And so it begins at my house little by little. And uh, this week I'll be busy doing my house and getting things ready because winter's coming. As, uh, Sacramento is typical. I mean, we were, what was it, three days ago we hit 89 and now it's 73 all day and we're going down to four at you know, the low, the low 40s tonight. So it happens really fast here to where everything changes. So I'm, I'm prepped tonight to run my furnace and all that stuff. But uh, I'm glad to be here. I hope you're glad to be here. You know, every Sunday we try to read out of a paranormal theme book, whether it's a story or whether it's about haunted antiques. You know, we've done that. We've read about haunted aircraft. Haunted, um, let's say, like airlines, haunted airlines, rather. We've read about haunted airlines and aircraft. We've read about haunted antiques. We've read about haunted houses. You know, we've done all, all that gauntlet. Plus, over the holidays last year, we read from Mrs. Miracle. And, uh, yeah, and so we're just continuing the trend with what we're doing. So the plan now with this book, and this is by Rebecca F. Pittman again, because uh, if you remember the series, we read on Lizzie Borden was by Rebecca F. Pittman, and so is this book that we're reading. And uh, so, what's going to happen? We're going to start this weekend. You know, we read you know once a week, unless unless one of my guests can't make it or something. But we read every Sunday. And with this particular book, once we hit Thanksgiving, uh, depending where we're at in it, or if we're done, that's fine. If not, we'll stop right where we're at, and then we'll shift into holiday books. I have another I have another book planned in behind this one, that's going to tell how holiday scary holiday tales all right so that's what we're going to be doing over the holidays so then what will happen is if we were in the middle of this book or almost done well once we're done with the holidays after new year's we'll just pick up this book and continue and then right behind this we'll be reading from our friend anna marie manalo's newest book which i believe is unholy structure but that won't be until january february when we get to that but in the meantime, we're going to read about the Salem Witch Trials, and we're going to read about Haunted Salem, Massachusetts, because there's a lot of history back east. So we're going to be reading about that starting today. And again, it's um, by our favorite, by one of my, our favorite guests, Rebecca Pittman. And uh, this is the second of the second book of hers that we are going to read live. We have permission to read it, so uh, that will start today. And again, uh, she's requested for me to remind you that the book can be purchased at Amazon if if you like it. Okay. So this time, instead of now, now if you guys want to come into the chat room and say hi uh, or make a comment about the book or something, feel free to do that because it's on a PDF this time. It's kind of, I'm reading it on. I'm using my Kindle today to read the book. So 
Um, at least we'll have that instead of me reading a, a PDF off the screen. So, um, yeah. So let, let me open this thing up. Give me a minute. I have a very antiquated, a very antiquated tablet. Great tablet, but it's old. Can't even do updates. For, can't even do Samsung updates on this thing anymore. That's how old it is. I have like an ancient version of, what do they call it? Ice cream on there. Is it ice cream? I forget what the, what the running thing is for these. But anyway, welcome, and I hope you enjoy this. And uh, like I said, every Sunday we're going to be doing this. Uh, we've been doing it for the last year. We started this, I think, around for the holidays last year is when we started doing this. And then we just kept going, and people liked it, and so we just kept reading on the weekends. So this is what we're doing today. Okay, so let me uh, bring up the Kindle, and we'll start We'll start by reading the forward and all that stuff in the book. And again, if you want to do a chat and talk to me or talk to each other in the chat room, feel free to do that. I will be able to see them now because I'm not reading, you know, directly off the laptop screen for this one. So let me call it up. Okay. Okay. So uh, are we ready? I think we're ready to go. If somebody wants to make me some popcorn and snacks, that'd be really great. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and see if I can do this. I'm going to move this. Just hang in there for one second. Okay, I think you guys can hear me all right with that. I'm going to move the mic over here because that way I won't have a mic in my face when I'm reading. So I'm going to boost this a little bit. I don't like the sound. There's too much back, There's too much back sound on it. Hang on. Just make an adjustment on this. There we go. I didn't like the back sound. Okay, so here we go. So we are reading... From, let me go back over. Okay, hang on. It blew itself up. Hang on a second, let me get back in. I just moved myself off the page. Oh, this is how life is. Okay, the history and haunting of Salem. And it covers the witch trials and everything. So here we go. Let me write this up. And, of course, the book, again, is The History and Haunting of Salem, The Witch Trials, and Beyond. This is the preface. I was faced with the reality that so many dedicated historians and gifted writers have gone before me and will, no doubt, come after. The unprecedented events of 1692 in a remote and relatively unimportant town called Salem Village continued to capture, continues to capture our imagination and beg for answers. Why? Why here? Why did a populace dominated by men in an era where women were relegated to childbearing and running a home and children were deemed visible and less spoken to suddenly act with suddenly act with retrocredulity the claims of witches and the devil from girls as young as eight years of age? How were Christian women such as Rebecca Nurse and Martha Corey suddenly stripped of their church covenants and hanged? What happened in Salem Village? and the neighboring towns of Andover, Beverly, Topsfield, Bilirka, Waverly, Boston, and more? Was it a perfect storm of events that ended friendships and put trust to naught? Many of the girls who led the witch trial attacks had witnessed brutal slings of family and neighbors at the hands of Indian tribes. Wars with the natives, French and Canadians, were still raging as accused witches huddled in area prisons awaiting their fate. Traveling through the woods at night was akin to playing Russian roulette. 
At the same time, Massachusetts was without a charter, something that played heavily in the lawlessness of the witch trials. Increased, increased Mather was petitioning the King of England for the important papers that would allow the New England state to steer its way through troubled waters. By the time he returned home to Boston with the governing laws that may have stemmed the flow of madness in Salem Village, it was too late. And, and what and what is the religious discourse here for looking up? And what of the religious discord in the village? The new Reverend Paris was literally begging for firewood and his wages to survive, yet he found himself squarely in the crosshairs of a feud that separated the very members of his congregation. As he spewed forth warnings of the devil from the pulpit, partly in an effort to shame the members in honoring his calling and fulfilling their promise to him a, a fair living. He was fueling the fear and distrust already so prevalent in that small community. When you add to the discord, when you add the discord between the neighbors over land, inheritance, and various squabbles, you have the makings of a cyclone that ravaged the small rural hamlet. There are layers to the story of the Salem witch trials that cannot be ignored. Salem Village was a small town, virtually ignored by the prosperous seaport of Salem Town, only a short distance away. They were farmers trying to eke out a living from hard ground, marshes, craggy hillsides. Salem Town, on the other hand, was seeing immense prosperity with its burgeoning import and export business and the sea trades. When Salem Village came begging to the town magistrates of their sister city for help in the beginning months of the witch outbreak, they were told to fend for, the, for yourselves. Even the governing and military heads in Boston saw the witch hysteria as something that could work to their advantage. They had bungled many other military attempts in the war with France and the Indians. What better way to blame their thwarted efforts on the devil? It is difficult for those of us in a world filled with technological devices, space travel, and quantum physics re revelations to understand a religious sect who believed without question that the forces of evil lived among, among them as surely as the sun rose and set. The Prince of Air and Darkness traveled with 9,000 men, women, and children aboard the 17 ships that left England and the Anglican Church behind in the early 1600s. Later, as many as 20,000 dissenters would follow. The Puritans created a new religion, one of total purity and separation from the pagan beliefs they found in the Catholic Church of England under the Stuarts' rule. They came to the shores of New England to build their city on the hill, a beacon of God's laws that would shine across the frigid waters of the Atlantic and chasten the English courts. Thousands of executions had been going on in Europe for decades. Witches were burned at the stake in numbers that would, that would baffle the mind today. The Puritans of New England believed inexplicably that if hardship fell upon their neighbor, then God had found them wanting. Crops and livestock that perished, descendants in the household, stillborn babies, these were signs that involved parties that, that these were signs that the involved parties had sinned and the devil had visited them or sent his witches to obtain a pound of flesh. Let me shift this over here. Children were told that they would go to hell or were children of Satan if they misbehaved. Hell was preached from the pulpit more often than words of hope and peace. It was an atmosphere of fear, born from myriad of events afflicting a small insignificant colony. Massachusetts Bay Colony was settled by unrelenting laws that would not tolerate any deviation from it. They considered themselves the chosen people, and those found straying beyond the harsh confines of the rules were subject to public humiliation. 
the pillories and stocks were wooden frames with holes for the heads and hands, where the disobedient were locked for hours and sometimes days in the village common on full display. Women were branded with signs or things attached to their clothing that labeled them with sins that varied from scolding one's husband to adultery. Giles Corey was pressed to death beneath a board laden down with large rocks when he refused to plead innocent or guilty of witchcraft before the 1692 Witch Trial Committee. Hangings were a public affair, and children were in attendance. These public humiliations and executions were a warning to others who thought of going off the Puritan beaten path. Children were not cosseted in the harsh, new, not causing the harsh New England households and communities. Their souls were at stake, and if seeing their neighbor dangling from a tree limb instilled the fear of God in them, then it was a necessary lesson. The colonies were ruled by men. Women were to bear the children, tend the gardens, make candles, quilts, and clothing, and obey. Above all, obey. Some were lucky enough to have grown female to have grown female children to help them or servants. The chores and meals were a tedious rhythm each day. Men worked tirelessly in a wilderness that often seemed determined to maintain its invincible tree lines and rocky landscape. Marshes were sprinkled throughout the territory, a breeding ground for mosquitoes and disease. The household leaders, however, were afforded the variety and companionship of their male neighbors that women were denied. The village males would go off and hunt and fish after the harvest was gathered. They attended meetings and discussed church and village politics. For the wives and daughters, the sparse walls of the rudimentary homes were their world. Trips to the market, a quilting bee, or a church were looked upon as a holiday from the, from the drudgery they inherited along with their mother's brooch. Church meeting houses became a place to catch up on gossip concerning neighbors and juicy nuggets of information about nearby towns. The religious grapevine had tendrils that reached unprecedented distances in the winter of 1692. The Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony became more unrelenting and intolerant than the Church of England from which they had escaped. Then the Church of England, I'm sorry. Then the Church of England from which they had escaped. They brought much of the religious dogma with them, along with their family heirlooms, chosen pieces of furniture, and pewter. The smoke of thousands of witches roasting upon wooden pyres in European courtyards clung to them as surely as the salt scenting the sea air. Then why, in this obscure village of farmers, has 19 hangings, one man pressed to death, and five deaths from imprisonment continued to be the fascination and the incredible touchstone for the term witches? It is precisely for the impossible conditions that created this sad bookmark in American history that we cannot look away. As with my other books in the History and Haunting series, I set up the atmosphere of the happenings based on archived documents, testimony, and history of the area. It is my way of pulling you into the story. It's a nod to Truman Capote's nonfiction novel, In Cold Blood. The facts are real. The telling of them is my own particular style. The final section of the book offers insights into haunted locations around Salem and events that still impact the town today, such as the continued fascination with the movie Hocus Pocus. It is my sincere hope that this book offers another viewpoint and insight into one of America's tragedies. These were real people who in another time, during different circumstances, may have survived. Their story is one of acute courage and faith. They are due our empathy and our, and our admiration, along with our curiosity. Quotes and testimony from the witch trial era have been left untouched, 
spelling errors and all. I felt it gave authenticity to the text. Rebecca F. Pittman, June 25th, 2019. Prologue. Let me try to get this in the position I want before I start going at it. Here we go. Let me do this. All right, everybody. Here we go. Prologue. The moon pressed hard through the sullen clouds in an effort to see its reflection in the steel gray waters of Salem Harbor. Winter laid claim to the, to the hamlet's fields and houses that clung to the hard ground in a terra firma patchwork quilt. Their boundaries were documented only as rough lines drawn up upon crude maps. Their, 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 their ambiguity creating a constant source of contention among the neighboring towns. It was January 1692. As smoke curled from the chimneys of homes, both rudimentary and money alike, something moved in the smoke, laden night air. It brushed through the bare branches of towering oaks and traced unseen fingers along the rooftops of Salem Village. Whisperings like gossip on the wind blended with the brine-scented sea breeze coming from the harbor in Salem Town. Strange shadows escaped from brush and moved along rutted roadways, lingering near the parsonage and meeting house and slipping up to peer into the windows of Ingersoll's Ordinary. The unseen entity moved among the various dwellings, assessing its inhabitants and planning the, the machinations that would rip this New England village apart. Wooden doors held secure by iron latches would falter, proving there was nothing impervious to the insidious force lurking just above the roof line. Nightmares among inmates, already fueled by fears of Indian attacks, cruel winter conditions, a charterless government, a fiery lecture from the pulpit warning of damnation and hell, would be made of more would be made more terif of more terrifying stuff in the weeks and months to come. Not one soul in Salem Village and the neighboring towns would be safe from the outcry of witch. As the moon slipped behind a bank of clouds, Sarah Good lay wrapped in a ratty blanket inside a barn the only refuge offered to her after a day of begging. Her four-year-old daughter, Dorcas, pressed up against her in a fetal position, soft rumblings of hunger coming from her small belly. Something swept through the cracks of weathered boards, and she shivered. It was to be a long winter. Clergymen, cosseted with their scriptures in small rooms laced with wood smoke, glanced at flickering candles as some unceased force bent the flames. Children moved closer to each other in shared beds and clutched their coverings tightly. Livestock moved restlessly, the forlorn bellowing of a cow sounding in the darkness. Tatuba, a Spanish Indian slave, listened to the night sounds outside the parsonage where she lived. Nigglings of fear pulsed in her veins. Sudden gusts of wind caused tree limbs to groan and thin branches to rattle, a sound not unlike witches cackling. Cats rose up suddenly from a sound sleep, their hackles raised, and hissed towards the doorways. And so the stage was set. An invisible map of Essex County was put into place above Salem Village, where chess pieces were set in place. The two kings of England and France, who were battling over Massachusetts, took their respective places on the antiquated parchment map, their queen standing steadfast in their queen standing steadfast in the milieu. The warring families of the Putnams and Porters would don their nightly helmets and move in ways that within mere months would find their neighbors jailed and some strung up and dropped from sturdy tree limbs. 
the castles of government in nearby Boston would fall beneath the depravity that would throw their gavels back into their faces. The pawns would, of course, be the gaggle of young girls who would be the trumpeters of death. The unseen hand lingered over the game board, deciding its first move. It came to rest upon the first piece that was to be played, a bishop. Better yet, a reverend. Chapter 1 The Bishop, The Winter of Discontent Reverend Samuel Paris sat in his study and pulled his candle closer in hopes the meager flame would add warmth to the frigid room. Outside, the January wind howled and snow coated the ripple glass window panes with frost. The thoughts that taunted him as he sat hunched over his next sermon were definitely not ones found in scripture. The fire he tended in the twin fireplaces of his parsonage was dependent on firewood that the Salem village inhabitants had agreed to furnish as part of his contract for signing on as reverend. Yet, here he suffered through yet another winter as the villagers refused to donate the fuel. He blew on his fingers and set again to writing, the cold ink reluctant to flow across the parchment. A muffled cough sounded from the parlor below, reminding him of his wife Elizabeth's declining health, the lack of heat, no doubt, contributing to her illness. He bristled once again, thinking of the discord within his own congregation that kept him rationing his diminishing woodpile. Nearly half of the village was against him. His sermons from the pulpit warning of the retribution that would befall those who did not honor Christ and in direct alliance himself had done nothing but reminded people the devil was among them. The sermon he delivered on November 22, 1691, had been a firm reminder. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make mine enemies thy footstool. The enemies had only trudged home after the Sunday meeting to their own warm fires and grumbled against their neighborhoods, their neighbors. What am I doing here? Played like a refrain in his tired mind. He knew the fate that had befallen the three clergymen before him. Two were hounded out of town, John Bailey and George Burroughs, and only Diodat Lawson had met with some popularity, but chose to leave the cantankerous bickering and feuds of Salem Village by signing on as a chaplain for the military expedition to Maine. The appointed, the appointed governor, Sir Edmund Andros, headed the expedition in 1687. Soon after his return to Salem Village, Lawson's wife and daughter died. As was the prevalent mantra in the small hamlet, some villagers felt his tragic loss was punishment by the devil for deserting them. He moved to Boston in, in a fury, where he finally became the pastor. Uh, the pastor of uh, I'm going to try to say this: the pastor of Escituit, Massachusetts. But Salem Village had not seen the last of him. He returned during the witch trials of 1692 to look into the outbreak. The result was a 10-page pamphlet titled A Brief and True Narrative of Some Remarkable Passages Related to Sunday, Sundry Persons excuse me, Afflicted by Witchcraft at Salem Village. Paris rubbed a hand across his clammy brow and thought of the enormous tragedies that surrounded his small village. Smallpox had broken out in, near, in nearby Salem Town no doubt brought in by a ship where the disease had broken out earlier. Indian raids still ravaged the coastline, burning and destroying towns only 57 miles away, such as New York, or such as York, such as York, Maine. Many of his parishioners were refugees, for, were refugees for, 
from from the milieu. I don't know why I can't say that word. And several young girls whose faces looked up to him from their pews on the Sabbath were orphaned and working as maids in village homes. Mercy Short was one such survivor who had witnessed unimaginable atrocities at the hands of the Wombonki Indians when in 1690 they attacked Salmon Falls, New Hampshire, now Brunswick, Maine. Mercy was the daughter of Clement and Faith Short and sister to nine siblings. Her mother and father and three of the children were slain before her eyes. Fifteen-year-old Mercy was taken captive and marched through the harsh wilderness to Quebec, where she would be sold as a captive. During the frightening pilgrimage, Mercy witnessed one teenage girl beheaded as a warning to the others should they try and escape. A small boy was murdered and dropped before her, and one of her Salmon Fall neighbors, Robert Rogers, was stripped and tied to a stake and forced to endure horrors that haunted the young girl's dreams years later. Cotton Mather, the minister from Boston, who would play a large role in the witches' trials, wrote of what Rogers slang, the Wombakis danced about him, and at every turn they did with their knives cut collops of his flesh from his naked limbs and throw them with his blood into his face. Mercy Short was one of the lucky few who was ransomed in 1691, only a year before the witchcraft outbreak began in Salem Village. She became a servant in the household of a wealthy merchant's widow, Margaret Thatcher, in Boston. The following May 1692, she happened across Sarah Good, the second victim of the witch trials, who was being held in the Boston prison. Sarah asked Mercy for some tobacco. The young 17-year-old threw wood shavings in the face of the accused witch instead, shouting, Here's tobacco for you. Later that night, Mercy finally lost touch with reality and broke out in violent fits, unable to sleep or eat. Cotton Mather was her acting minister at the time and took her into his home to try and exercise the demon tormenting her. He also studied her and wrote about the incident. Reverend Samuel Parris continued to stew. Massachusetts seemed doomed. The colony had been without a lawful charter from England for five years now. They were essentially steering a rudderless ship. Increase Mather, Cotton's father, was even now in England begging King James to reinstate their charter that had been taken away earlier after the Puritans refused to honor the church dictates of the British Isle from which they had escaped. When they threw the England-appointed governor, Sir Edmund Andros, in prison, their charter was revoked. Without the charter, inhabitants of the New England settlement faced the realization that the land that they had cleared, farmed, and built their homes upon was now without a valid claim. Tensions and land boundary disputes erupted. Salem Village quarrels taken to Boston's general court, were slow in being resolved. If they appealed to the magistrates in Salem Town, they were basically told they were on their own. Salem Village, known as the Farms, had been negotiating with the prosperous seaport of Salem Town for years to gain their autonomy and stop paying taxes for things that did not benefit them, such as road repairs and help with the town's poor. Let us pay to fix our own roads and tend to our own poor was basically the entity put forth repeatedly. They also wanted their own church meeting house to alleviate the long walk to Salem Town to worship. Roads were barely passable, often no more than cattle trails, and weather conditions were harsh. They finally won the battle for the meeting house and the right to appoint their own pastor. Other pleas for help fell on deaf ears. The awarding of their own meeting house and clergymen became one more source of contention. <laughs> 
The Puritans had a caste system in place. Church attendance was mandatory. However, not all church attendees were given the title of full member. Puritans had to prove through conversion that they were worthy of distinction of the predestined elect, a body of people who were guaranteed an entrance into heaven. Other villagers could attend church meetings, but they were not allowed to partake of the sacrament service that followed the general meeting. The church also rejected the halfway covenant, which was allowed, which allowed infants of at least one church member to be baptized, whether they had joined the Salem Village Church or not. This further inflamed the villagers to the point that nearly three-fourths of the adults were against him. In essence, the congregation was separated into haves and have-nots, and the have-nots resented it. When a committee of Paris's supporters taxed the village in an effort to pay the minister's salary and came calling for a quarter of their wood, tempers flared and the lines were drawn. This division would play out in the most heinous of acts. Salem Village was adrift. They were neither part of Salem Town nor legally protected under Boston's higher councils. Without a charter to give guidelines and backing to the constant eruptions between neighbors, families, and businesses, Salem Village was a powder keg with a fuse waiting to be lit. The struck match would come in the form of a simple conjuring trick using an egg and a glass of water. Chapter 2 The Ponds Something wicked this way comes. The new year of 1692 brought with it a thick snow, eradicating the road's boundaries and unwrapping Salem Village's households in a feeling of isolation. Cabin fever was a very real thing when the winters were upon the spread, the spread out homes of this small enclave. Sequestered in rooms that afforded little entertainment, the inhabitants looked out upon a world of white. In Reverend Samuel Paris's home, the firewood was used sparingly, adding to the feeling of hopelessness that pervaded the clergyman's thoughts. His wife was often bedridden, and there were four children living beneath this roof. Not even Christmas had colored the home in boughs and presents. Christmas and Easter were considered pagan holidays and were not celebrated in Puritan homes. Winter brought only the relief that perhaps Indian attacks would be fewer in the deep drifts of snow. Legends have abounded as to whether the witchcraft outbreak began in the kitchen of the, of the parsonage, which Atuba, the slave Paris, brought with them from Barbados, may have been teaching, conjuring, and spells. Paris had failed to make a going concern of the plantation his father left to him, and now found himself in New England, first as a merchant, and finally as the minister for a small bickering village. He had brought with him three slaves, Tutuba and John Indian, and a young black male who died at the age of 16. No specific documents, but two survive that point specifically to Tutuba teaching Paris's young nine-year-old daughter Betty and her 11-year-old cousin Abigail fortune-telling and spells. The only recorded account comes from Reverend Hale's passage in his modest inquiry into the nature of witchcraft, uh, witchcraft, 1702. He wrote, Concerning the events of 1692, I knew of one of the afflicted persons who, as I was, as I was credibly informed, did try with an egg and a glass to find her future husband's calling, till there came up a coffin, that is, a specter in likeness of a coffin, and she afterward followed with a diabolical molestation to her death, and so died a single person. The original spelling, parentheses, the original spelling has been kept from the document. 
The other mention of this incident was also by Hale, and he documented it during his visit to Betty Paris at a later date. It will be discussed later in the book. Many attribute Hale's description to Abigail Williams. He was one of the first on the scene to witness the frightening antics of she and Betty Paris, and the Venus glass conjuring may have slipped out. Abigail was orphaned and living with her uncle's family in the parsonage. Her role may have been slightly more elevated than that of servant, as she was, after all, Reverend Paris's niece. But her dull routine would have involved unrelenting boredom and household chores. Abigail did die single at the age of 37. Others of the witch trial accusers also died without marrying, leaving Hale's accreditation to one of the afflicted, somewhat ambiguous. Betty Paris married and bore five children, dying at the respectable age of 77. Young Elizabeth, Betty Paris, was by all accounts a nervous child. Her mother was often ill, and her father preached fire and brimstone with a, with a plum. Tales of Indian attacks and burned villages were not fabrications, but a living, breathing reality, one that many of the orphaned village girls told with relish. Her father's constant diatribe about the lack of firewood and essentials may have haunted her. Her daily scripture study reinforced that the devil was real and hell was wide open for those who strayed, even in thought. Children were taught to speak only when bidden. The Puritan form of love was founded on spare the rod and you spoil the child. For a nine-year-old, the world was a foreboding place. Many of the young women who cried witch and were later grouped as the afflicted were in their teens and early twenties. Even Anne Putnam, one of the few married adult accusers, was only 28. These girls were becoming women their hormones and repressed natures straining at the Puritan bit with, with which they had been fitted. There was no outlet for pent-up frustrations and drama. While occasional harvest festivals and dances occurred in the village, along with some singing and a few lawn games, the Puritan belief was that, a frivol was that frivolity was of the devil's making. The mantra, idle hands or the devil's workshop, acted as a yardstick for righteous living. Teenagers in the 21st century are no different. The term, that's a teenager for you, validates the common interpretation that this is a time of life when acting out, rebelling, and finding oneself is a matter of course. For Salem Village in 1692, hemmed in by an isolating winter, it only took one young woman to find the rules to set off a milestone. It is generally believed the strange behavior of Betty Paris and Abigail Williams began to manifest in mid-January. A week later, on Monday, January 25th, York, Maine, was attacked by roughly 150 Wabanki Indians. They captured most of the town's houses, burned others, and destroyed livestock and inhabitants. Nearly 50 villagers were murdered and another 100 taken captive. One of the butchered was Reverend Shubal Drummer, Dummer, proving the clergy were not a protected people. Reverend George Burroughs from Wells, Maine, who would later be one of the accused in the witch trials outbreak, looked upon the burned ruins of York and said, God is still manifesting his displeasure against this land. He who formerly hath set his hand to help us doth even write better, bitter things against us. This was the underlying belief in New England. The chosen people were beginning to believe they were now chosen not by God, 
but his nemesis, the devil. What had they done to incur such wrath? Who among them was bringing on this continuous affliction? It was in the very home that George Burroughs, excuse me a second, had once inhabited as a former reverend of Salem Village, that the first signs of something amiss began to manifest. If the two children living there had, indeed, been playing with magic, had the threat of the devil tormenting those who defied the Puritan law and stick a hole in their young minds, for Betty, whose father was, after all, the reverend and religious leader in the village, the guilt of trifling with things she knew were forbidden may have unnerved a mind already beset with fears. Legend has it that the two girls, and possibly other teenagers in the nearby households, had asked Tituba to show them how to see the roles of their future husbands. For these girls, the man they might one day marry held all their future hopes. Unmarried women were sometimes left destitute or reliant on others to provide them with a home. A rich husband was desirable, but in a village where the eligible young men may have been few, the uncertainty of their future as a spinster or matron was a daily reality. Many people dabbled in white magic, feeling the need to have some control over their lives. It was strictly forbidden, yet it was common knowledge it was practiced behind closed doors. Cotton Mather had, re had remonstrated against it in his sermons and writings. One such device for peering into the future was called a Venus glass. An egg white was dropped into a glass of water and gently stirred. As the, albu as the albumen settled, it was thought to take the shape of a future husband's occupation. Thus, a scythe portended a farmer, a scythe portended a farmer, an apron a butcher, etc. According to Reverend Hale's account, one such conjuring revealed the shape of a coffin. This may have been enough to unhinge young Betty Paris's already guilt-ridden mind. Did the coffin mean her own death for dallying with the devil's magic? It is at this gathering that legend puts the beginning of the witchcraft madness. Shortly after January 15, 1692, Abigail Williams began to exhibit strange behavior that revealed itself as strange utterances and staring for long periods of time at the space before her. Betty soon followed suit. Or she may have been the first, but their symptoms worsened quickly. The children crawled beneath furniture and shrieked and unseen horrors. Reverend John Hale from neighboring Beverly was the first to report on the strange behavior of the girls. Reverend Paris may have reached out to him as a fellow clergyman in hopes of keeping the girls' maladies from the gossiping villagers. Hale later wrote that the girls were sadly afflicted of they knew not what distempers. They were bitten and pinched by invisible agents. Their arms, necks, and backs turned this way and that way and returned back again so as it was impossible for them to do to themselves and beyond the power of any epileptic fits or natural disease to affect. Sometimes they were taken dumb. Their mouths stopped, their throats choked, their limbs racked and tormented so as might move a heart of stone to sympathize with them with bowels of compassion for them. Reverend Hale also stated, I will not enlarge in the description of their crucial of their cruel sufferings, because they were all in they did, because they were in all things afflicted as bad as John Goodwin's children at Boston in the year sixteen eighty eight. Dio Lawson witnessed the recent afflictions of the four children of John Goodwin in Boston. 
They were believed to be bewitched in June of 1688. One of the young girls, Martha Goodwin, would have to be restrained to keep her from running into the fireplace where a fire was lit. Lawson wrote that the children exhibited strange behavior. Yeah, they would fly like geese and be carried with an incredible swiftness through the air, having but just their toes now and then upon the ground, and their arms waved like the wings of a bird. An elderly Catholic woman, Mary Glover, was accused and arrested for bewitching the children. She was hanged that same year, only four years before the 1692 Salem hangings. An earlier famous account of a young woman's affliction came from England and was presented to King James I in 1605. And Gunter showed pins sticking into her flesh and stunned the, and stunned the onlookers when she vomited pins from her mouth and expelled them through her nose and even her urine. King James I, a man well studied in the art of witchcraft, accused her of fraud. She admitted to it finally, and the case was noted in several publications. On March 13, 1664, two elderly widows from Lowestoft, England, Rose Cullender and Amy Denny, were accused of witchcraft after 13 indictments were brought against them, alleging they had bewitched several people, including children. The two women were hanged on March 17, 1664, a mere four days after their trial. The case was publicized in a 60-page pamphlet titled, a trial of witches at the Assises held at Bury at the Assises held at Bury Street, Edmonds, for the County of Suffolk, on the tenth day of March, sixteen sixty four. It was published in England in sixteen eighty two, only ten years before the Salem witchcraft outbreak. It is significant as the parallels of the afflicted symptoms. The symptoms, the resulting aftermath, is eerily similar to those of the Salem accusers. The report states that Samuel Pacey of Lowestoft refused to sell Amy Denny some fish, hang on a second, just flipped it on me, some fish on several occasions. After denying her for the third time, Pacey's daughter Deborah was taken with most violent fits, feeling most extreme pain in her stomach, and shrieking out in a most dreadful manner, like unto a whelp, and like unto a sensible creature. During the trial, Pacey testified that his daughter, in her fits, would cry out of Amy, of Amy Dooney as the cause of her malady, and that she did affright her with apparitions of her person. Rose Cullender was also accused of appearing to Deborah and her older sister Elizabeth in visions, threatening them. The two women were examined for devil's marks by a team of six matrons. These marks were supposed to prove that the accused was a witch and the marks were, were where she suckled her familiars, animals such as snakes, birds, and other small creatures that did her bidding. Marks were found on Rose Cullender, and this evidence was presented to the court. The trial began on March 10, 1664. By then, the afflictions had spread to three other girls who were neighbors of the Paces: Jane Bocking, 14 years old, Susan Chandler, 18 years old, and Anne Durant, between 16 and 21 years of age. The girls fell into strange fits during the trial, shrieking out and then suddenly struck dumb. Elizabeth Pacey was only cured from her fits by the touch of Amy Denny's hand, a method used in the Salem witch trials as well. Supposedly, if an afflicted person is touched by the witch that hurts them, the curse goes back on the tormentor, curing the victim. 
The two women were found guilty of witchcraft after only a 30-minute deliberation. They were hanged on March 17, 1662. In the Losoff case, one of the bewitched girls ran round about the house, holding her apron, crying, Hush, hush. Abigail Williams was noted as sometimes making as if she would fly, stretching up her arms as high as she could and crying, Wish, wish, wish. Yodet Lawson witnessed Abigail run toward the fireplace and had attempted to go into the fire, just as Martha Goodwin had during her affliction only a few years earlier. Both of these famous accounts of witchcraft trials were in publication and no doubt read and commented upon. Abigail and Betty read their scriptures daily, and it is not without reason to assume they read or were told of the perils of the children who tempted the devil with their misbehaving. The similarities between the behavior of the girls associated with the Salem Village outbreak and those of earlier publicized trials are too sim similar to ignore. The Salem girls also produced pins protruding from their bodies during the witch inquisitions, fell into fits, and at times were struck dumb. Testimony of being pinched by unseen apparitions or specters was a common complaint. Pinching was also used as, as a reprimand by parents for minor offenses. Pins were found in every household and each maid was taught sewing and quilting. To secret pens in one's clothing was an easy thing to do. There is also the question of whether the girls may have helped each other in their duplicity as their fame escalated and their need to provide more visible evidence became necessary, such as producing a broken knife blade and bite marks upon their wrists. According to Reverend Hale's account, Mr. Paris, seeing the distressed condition of his family, desired the presence of some worthy gentlemen of Salem and some neighbor ministers to consult together at this house, who, when they came and had inquired diligently into the sufferings of the afflicted, concluded they were preternatural and feared the hand of Satan was in them. The group of ministers advised Reverend Paris that he should sit still and wait upon the providence of God to see what might, what, to see what time might discover, and to be much in much in prayer for the discovery of what was yet secret. They also examined Tuba, who confessed the making of a cake, and said her mistress in her own country was a witch, and had taught her some means to be used for the discovery of a witch, and for the prevention of being bewitched, etc., but said that she herself was not a witch. The above narrative was printed in a publication called A Modest Inquiry by John Hale in 1702, ten years after the 1692 witchcraft outbreak. That he was on the scene and witnessed the events in person holds great weight. Reverend Paris did as he was told and waited. It was perhaps his hope the whole thing would blow over and spare him the humiliation of admitting to the village already at war with him that the devil had chosen his household, daughter and niece, to manifest his evil machinations. But the girl's afflictions worsened, and the gossip was spreading. Paris finally turned to physicians for help. On February 24th, it is believed William Griggs, a physician from nearby Ryle, which is a subsection of Salem Village, examined the girls and diagnosed what everyone was thinking. The children were under an evil hand. William Griggs was the only doctor in Salem Village at the time of the witchcraft outbreak. He was one of Paris's supporters in a village fractured by religious conflict. That, pa that Paris trusted Griggs and called upon him in the hopes of finding a physical malady rather than a diabolical one 
would have been natural. Griggs lived with his wife in their ward, Elizabeth Hubbard, a little over a mile away from the parsonage. Finally, on February 25th, 1692, Reverend Parrish and his wife Elizabeth left the two girls alone with Tatuba and John Indian to attend a Thursday lecture in a nearby town and talk with other clergymen about their problem. This innocuous trip was to become a turning point in what may have been two young girls' antics to gain attention. It may have begun innocently enough with Betty's nerves getting the best of her, but suddenly her parents, who had been involved with their own burdens, were paying attention to her. She was put to bed and prayed over. Her chores may have been passed to Abigail. Seeing the benefit of acting out, Abigail may have followed suit. Here was a reprieve from the tedium of the daily routine. Adults were focusing on them. People were coming from other villages to witness the theatrics called out within the austere parsonage walls. Tatuba took advantage of her master's and mistress's absence to take matters into her own hands and make a witch cake. It is known that a neighbor, Mary Sibley, instructed Tatuba as to the ingredients needed. Betty and Abigail may have watched as the slave mixed together rye meal and the girl's urine into a mound and then baked it into the fireplace. And then baked it into the fireplace. Once it was ready, it was fed to a dog, and a small party watched the animal with trepidation. The belief was that part of the witch was in the afflicted girls. Taking some of the urine and putting it into a cake would then extract some of the curse from them. Once the cake was fed to the dog, the afflicted girls might find relief, and the witch might really reveal itself. There is no record of whether anything came of the antidote. We do know. Reverend Paris later found out about it and was furious. Tatuba had used the devil's magic to combat the devil, thereby inviting him into their home. Worse, it was validated Betty's worst fears that they had tempted Satan and his witches by conjuring with a Venus glass. Suddenly, it was no longer a game or a bid for attention. The cake was real. The counter magic baked into it must be real. Therefore, Witches in Salem Village must be real. It was also at this time, according to Tuba's testimony during her Inquisition, Inquisition, the devil appeared to the Paris' slave. Chapter 3 The Pawns Gather Forces What Afflicts Thee? While many of the village farms were widely strewn, some homes were close enough to be easily assessed from one to another. Such was the case of Mary Walcott, a 16-year-old girl who lived just north of the Paris's parsonage. Elizabeth Booth, 18 years old, and Susanna Sheldon, 19 years old, lived far enough away from the parsonage that their indoctrination into the circle of girls may have come about after a Sabbath sermon at the meeting house. While the Sheldon home was near Ipswich Road, the main artery running through Salem Village and leading into Salem Town, and north toward the meeting house, Topsfield, Andover and Wenham. It would still require walking over a mile to get to the tuba's kitchen, where some harmless conjuring may have att attracted the teenagers. Not unheard of walking distance in those days, but formidable in the winter snow. Ironically, Susanna would pass the entrance of the Rebecca Nurse Farm on her way to the parsonage or meeting house. Rebecca was an elderly church. Excuse me. Oh, yeah, my throat. Rebecca was an, was an elderly church co covenanted woman. I don't know why I'm having trouble with this stuff. <laughs> was an elderly church woman. We're just going to do that. 
who would bear the distinction of one of the oldest female witches to be hanged as a result of the girls crying out against her. Elizabeth Booth lived still farther south and was a neighbor of John and Elizabeth Proctor. She was no doubt friends with their maidservant, Mary Warren. Elizabeth was typical of the girls who found themselves in the, witchcraft, in, in the middle of the witchcraft milieu as the first accusers. Her family life was not a happy one. Her mother had been widowed twice, leaving Elizabeth without a father in, in a barren wilderness where a male was essential. The family, consisting of herself, her mother, her sister Alice, and brother George, struggled to keep food on the table. She would be one of the most outspoken of the girls, especially in her verbal attack on John Elizabeth Proctor and a Marblehead fisherman's wife, Wilmot Reed. Later in September, Elizabeth's 14-year-old sister, Alice, and 16-year-old sister-in-law, Elizabeth Wilkins, who had married Elizabeth's brother, George, after finding herself four months pregnant with a child, oops, joined the afflicted's ranks. Alice and Elizabeth Booth's more audacious claim during the trials was that 50 specters had joined the devil in their home on the outskirts of Salem for a communion of bread and wine. We do not know if more and more girls heard of the Venus glass conjuring trick and crept through the woods and muddy roads to the parsonage in hopes of divining their futures. We do know the affliction spread rapidly now, and other households were filled with the sounds of wailing as the girls were pinched and tormented by unknown forces. Elizabeth Hubbard was ward to Dr. William Griggs, Griggs, a physician called into Paris's home to examine the girls. His dour prognosis that they were under an evil hand would have been known to Elizabeth, an orphan 17-year-old who had been an indentured servant in Boston until her owner, Isaac Griggs, and his wife died in 1689. Dr. William Griggs was Isaac's father, and he paid the courts for Elizabeth's contract. As the only young person living in the elderly physician's home, most of the chores fell to her. As would be seen in the upcoming lineup of witches, the young women acting as accusers cried out against adults who had been, in one way or another, the target of gossip and unsavory stories overheard within their own homes. Their elders regaled certain villagers for any number of crimes, from boundary disputes to jealous rivalries. Dr. Griggs may have complained about Elizabeth Proctor's inadequate dealings as an ad hoc physician, someone who may have been competing for some of his medical practice. Elizabeth Hubbard was overheard to say the stomach pains of a neighbor, James Holton, were the work of John Elizabeth Proctor. She claimed the Proctor's specters attacked her. Elizabeth was responsible for filing 40 witchcraft petitions and testifying 32 times. The fact she was 17 years old qualified her as a legitimate witness, giving her accusations and that of the older girl, other older girls free reign to point and cry witch. But in the early days of February, no names of witches had yet been declared. Sarah Churchill and Mary Warren soon joined the ranks of the afflicted girls. The village's astonishment at the nature of the fits and the number of households falling beneath the evil hand were the only thing people could talk about. The girls were relieved of their chores as they writhed and babbled, piteous performances that touched all but a few hearts. There were older and wiser heads that looked at their antics with disgust. They are only causing mischief, was one statement used against the girls. The majority of the people crowding into Reverend Paris's small parlor, however, 
looked on with fear and trepidation. Not a few villagers secretly gloated at the minister's misfortune. Sarah Churchill was in her early to mid-twenties. Sarah, like many of the other girls, had witnessed the atrocities of Indian attacks. She had been sequestered inside a garrison house in Saco, Maine, and watched as the natives burned her grandfather's home, along with many others of the settlers who had fled across the river to the protection of the garrison. Her grandfather later died of his wounds. Sarah was not an orphan, like many of the others afflicted, but she was eventually reduced to acting as a maidservant to George Jacobs, Sr., a salty-tongued elder who would fall beneath the shadow of witchcraft. Mary Walcott, the Paris's closest neighbor, and one of the first to show signs of witchcraft after Abigail and Betty's original outbreak, was Sarah Churchill's relative. Nathaniel Ingersoll, owner of the tavern that would act as forum for the first witch inquest, was also a relative. Ingersoll's ordinary was a stone's throw away from the parsonage and meeting house. Sarah had originally been a reluctant recruit into the enclave of accusers. She, Mary Warren, and Mary Watkins admitted later to faking their seizures. When her faint attempt at seizures stalled, Mer Mercy Lewis, out of fear the rest of them would be found out, pressured her into confessing her, confessing her master, George Jacobs Sr., had beaten her with his walking sticks and called her a bitch witch. Sarah went on to accuse Jacobs' granddaughter, Margaret Jacobs, claiming that the two had forced her to sign the devil's book. They ended up in prison, but Sarah's outcry backfired as she found herself accused and thrown into jail. She confessed again that she had lied, and in June, she was released. Mary Warren, age 20, was another casualty of the Indian Wars. She and her parents had escaped the bloodshed in Maine, but her mother and father later died. She was alone in the world, with the exception of a sister who was a deaf mute. Mary ended up in the home of John Elizabeth Proctor. Their family was a large one with 11 children and another on the way. John ran a tavern from the farm, taking full advantage of the acreage's position where Ipswich Road branched into other roadways. Travelers from Salem Town, going north past Gallows Hill and heading to Lynn Boxford, Top Seed, or Reading, could stop for some ale and vittles. By all accounts, John Proctor was a harsh, no-nonsense type of man. His portrayal as the sympathetic figure in Arthur Miller's The Crucible may be a watered-down version of the farmer's true nature. Mary Warren would testify that John threatened to burn her out of her hysterics during the witch trials by forcing hot tongs, excuse me, by forcing hot tongs down her throat. He shouted, If ye are afflicted, I wish ye were more afflicted. When she cried out, Why? He answered, because you go to bring out innocent persons. John Proctor is one of the few adults who actually took action against the young women's fits. He told one neighbor, Samuel Sibley, that the best way to handle his jade was to thrash it out of her and to tie her to a spinning wheel to keep her busy. In the beginning, Mary Warren was not as verbal as the others in her testimonies, fearful of John Proctor's wrath. When John and Elizabeth were accused and subsequently jailed for witchcraft, Mary may have feared she would now have nowhere to go. In early April, shortly after their imprisonment, her fits disappeared. In gratitude, she posted a note on the meeting house board thanking Providence for curing her. 
The other girls, fearing she might betray them as frauds, turned on her and accused her of witchcraft, saying the only reason she was cured was because she had joined the devil. She was thrown into jail. Elizabeth Hubbard accused Mary Warren on the day of her inquisition that she claimed the afflicted girls were only play-acting. Rather than look into the allegations that the girls were faking, even though innocent people may hang for it, the magistrates continued on with the trial. Mary protested her innocence as the afflicted girls fell to the floor in fits. As the questions became pressing, Mary too dropped to the floor in convulsions. She was taken from the room. Upon being returned to the unrelenting questions and pressed to name witches, she again fell into fits and was removed, thus effectively avoiding pressing charges against the proctors or anyone else. Even when taken away to be questioned in private, she waffled on her answers. In prison, she seesawed back and forth between accusing others and recanting, yes, she had put a pin into a poppet, crude doll associated with witchcraft, that Elizabeth Proctor owned, but then no, she had never seen any poppets, but went on to name witches who had brought her the dolls. Yes, she made a mark in the devil's book, but only with her fingertip. Her stories were so convoluted that the magistrates finally let her out of jail and focused on her testimony against accused witches. At this point, she joined forces with the other girls, and the proctors became her main target. During the 1690s, the legal age for a child to testify in court for a major offense was 14 years old and older. Adults could testify to a younger child's behavior, but the child could not appear under oath. For that reason, Reverend Paris's daughter, Betty, age 9, and his niece, Abigail, age 11, could not be credible witnesses. That would soon change. At this time, they were still being asked, what afflicts thee? But as older girls from neighboring households began showing symptoms of bewitchment, namely Elizabeth Hubbard, age 17, the tide changed. Elizabeth Hubbard and Ann Putnam Jr., age 12, were the first newcomers to exhibit fits on February 25th, 1862. Suddenly, the adults were not asking, what afflicts thee? But who afflicts thee? This simple transfer of a single word began an event in history that would forever associate Salem Village, today's Danvers, today Danvers, Massachusetts, with the most famous witch trials in America. The answer to who afflicts thee would open the devil's book to names eagerly put forth by villagers with an axe to grind. The girls would indeed become pawns in a deadly game of revenge and greed. Okay, guys, that's it. We'll start chapter four next Sunday. Let me turn this off. Beautiful buildup. Lots of buildup in this book. As to the young witches. Those pra supposedly practicing witchcraft. Excellent, excellent buildup. Rebecca always does a good job building stuff up and setting it up. Always, always does a good job. Tomorrow, I won't be here. Tomorrow, I'm just taking an eye off. But, 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 but. There will be a show on YouTube. And the guest tomorrow night is Ben Westhoff. And Ben Westhoff is an investigative reporter who went undercover in the, um, excuse me, in, 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 I think they're drug mills, in the drug factories in China. And he did a huge, huge story on fentanyl. And it's an interesting story because he goes to the, like I said, he goes into those drug factories and he follows the trail all the way back in through who's selling it, who's purchasing it, 
who's selling it over here, what the results of, of having all that fentanyl over here is, and how it's how it's being mixed into other other drugs and used in other ways. So it was a very interesting interview, something that's dear to my heart because, of course, of my back problems and how hard it is, you know, to get uh, opioids right now. You know, and there's a lot of deaths going on with drugs, and some of these drugs are because people have to go out on the street to buy them. Like, for instance, somebody that's taking hydrocodone may have to go to the streets because they can't get it anymore and buy the hydrocodone from a dealer. The only issue with that is that sometimes these things are these, these things have fentanyl mi- mixed in. And fentanyl is so strong that it takes just very, very little to get high off of. And if they're not sure what the dosage is to take of the fentanyl, that's where you overdose over it. Or there may be too much fentanyl in that particular pill that, 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 that you get. So it's a very interesting, let me sit up here. I'm sinking. It's a very interesting interview. Um, and I think you guys will get something out of it because if you start looking through uh, and Google and start looking through different magazines and stuff, they're like time. I think I believe it was um, Time even came out. I could be wrong. It was Time or one of those uh, bigger magazines came out with an opinion piece just recently about op- you know opioids and what's gone wrong with the regulation of them and all that. So I wanted to tell this story. I've, I've been wanting for a long time to be able to kind of either talk about something like fentanyl or just kind of loop it all into one, you know, to, to bring that out. It's something to bring out to people. And that's why I decided to do this. So that'll be tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. on YouTube. Um, I've teased the show over on Facebook. So you guys can, can uh, click it over there. It's also on YouTube waiting to go as a premiere tomorrow. So please be sure to, to watch that. Let me know what you think of it. Let me know what you think of, you know, what, what he had to say about the, about the fentanyl trade and all that stuff. Okay. And uh, like I said, it's going to be an interesting week because we've got a little bit of everything guest-wise coming through. Um, quick, uh, you know, I could give you a quick tease. Um, this, uh, Tuesday we'll bring a woman who is a psychic, but she also uh, lived in a very, very haunted house with something that was dark in the house. So she has a book out about her experiences in that house, and that'll be on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we've got Reverend Paul Bagley with us and he is a uh, expert in bible prophecy so we're going to be talking about you know what's what, what what's coming up for all of us or what not what's coming up because this is entertainment only what could possibly be coming up for all of us so he's going to be with us on on uh, wednesday okay on thursday we're going to be talking about alien hybrids and and the, and the hybridization program I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a lady coming on to talk about that who fell victim to these abductions all her life and has had, allegedly had, I'm going to say allegedly, has allegedly had 24 hybrid children. So she's going to be on Thursday. And of course, Friday, our special show, it's our Halloween buildup. Nancy Matz is going to be with us and we're going to be talking about deceased pets. And she's going to answer your questions, maybe find out, you know, if your pet's still with you or what's going on or if you have a question you like answered. So we're going to have a big Friday. I just want to give you guys a heads up to what's coming up. But I do urge you guys to listen to tomorrow's show because it's it's something, you know, I don't cover all the time. And it's something that needs to be, excuse me, <laughs> it's something that needs to be covered and brought out to the open, you know, because it's not just happening to a few people. It's happening to a lot of people. And because it involves people, you know, things have, things have, have kind of ballooned out, you know, um, as far as 
uh, pain medication for people and all that. It, it, it all kind of like fits in, it, it all kind of jams together. But fentanyl is a very, very, very deadly drug. And, you know, when used not under the supervision of a doctor, because it is prescribed sometimes, so, but when used but not under the supervision of a doctor, this is where people overdose on it because they, it's just so strong that even, even a minute portion of it that seems so minute can overdose you. So check that out tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. on YouTube. And I will be in the chat room, though, okay? I won't be totally gone. I'll be in the chat room. So if you guys want to chit-chat, we can do that. I'll be over in the chat room on YouTube. But I, I, I think it's an interesting here and now story. And you guys know I'm a journalist and blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I like to cover different things. And so that just fits right in with my MO to cover different things. Okay? Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I know it's your Sunday night. And I hope you enjoyed this book i i have enjoyed it so far and um you know we're, we're learning all about the the basics basis for these girls these women that were brought up on charges of witchcraft and so it should be interesting to see well we know how it pans out obviously but to see what they had to go through even with the trials and everything all right okay if you like the show share it with five people if you hated the show Share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here, like I always say. The other thing is, you know, we're always looking for followers. So if you're watching from Facebook and you like the show, please hit that follow button and that like button. Let me know. You know, I, I'm look, always looking for followers. And uh, you're welcome, G Torres. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm always looking for followers. And, uh, you know, the more followers we get, the more I can do some. I, I can do stuff for you guys. You know, I'm trying to reach out to as many people as possible. Also, if you're watching from YouTube, there's that little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner down there. That will subscribe you to our YouTube channel because if you go over there, you can tell we have a lot of videos over there where, um, you know, different topics, just like this, this, this stuff tomorrow, just different topics that might interest you. you know, I even talk about spousal abuse and different people, you know, abuse and, and all kinds of things, all right, things having to do with children everything. So, I mean, that's what, that's what I do. And always remember that. You know, we're trying to get out information on stuff, but uh, this is also for entertainment. Entertainment only, right? For this is for your entertainment. Give you guys something to listen to. Okay. That being said, I'm going to shut up and wish you a happy end of your weekend. And I will see you. I will. Well, I'll see you tomorrow, but I'll be, like I said, I'll be in the chat room. So I will see you live on Tuesday, but, you know, we'll, I'll still be hanging out a little bit tomorrow. And you guys can go ahead and watch uh, Ben Westhoff. Okay. I'll, I will see you in the chat room tomorrow. Have a nice evening and uh, 